You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware, and the episodes are going to pick up as this race picks up. We have the first debate this week. We have this Amy Coney Barrett was selected officially by Trump over the weekend and now will head into, I guess, a nomination process. Judicial nomination process has been kind of a joke for a while now. The fact that we're going to be doing this within weeks of a presidential election uh, does not give me confidence it's going to be a a serious and sober uh, sort of consideration of her qualifications And as we've discussed before, uh, I think there's great merit to the fact that we shouldn't be considering this nomination at all. But that's where we are. That's what we're doing. Uh, And it it will affect the dynamics of this race. It will affect uh, what people are talking about. What remains uh, to be seen from my end is whether uh, it will change the trajectory of this race. We have not really seen a sign of that so far, but... How this plays out in the debate is going to be significant. My overview of the race up right now is this is still Joe Biden's to lose. His team is smart. They're handling this Supreme Court nomination wisely with caution. Uh, And Joe Biden is still in a strong, strong position. Some things to watch for. Pennsylvania, in my view, is where... You know, this race comes down to, and in some way, it's fitting. Joe, Joe Biden has staked so much of his public profile on Pennsylvania and his political appeal there. And we'll, you know, that's going to be tested. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll find out. And if that holds up, he is likely the president, uh, next president of the United States. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. Uh, Pennsylvania is going to be absolutely crucial. And then, you know, we're going to see, does the Rust Belt take the lead of focus? Ohio, you know, I think Michigan's looking pretty good for Biden, but, you know, does Ohio jump ahead or, um, or does the race pivot to the South, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, you know, the Sun Belt, um, that's going to be an interesting dynamic. And I think obviously the Biden campaign is going to try and keep uh, as many sort of paths to victory on the table. And we'll see how long they're able to do that or if it becomes clear that they're having to focus their their energies uh, elsewhere. This debate is going to be significant. In other news, uh, the New York Times released a initial and long report on... Uh, Trump's tax returns that uh, it uh, received access to, not exactly clear how, uh, but through uh, folks who had legal access to the reports. I mean, I'm assuming Trump's accountant is getting fired. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I think uh, the, the basic rundown of this story which is important, but not because I think it's going to greatly affect uh, the presidential election. The, the basic top line items of the story are 
uh, a uh, president Trump has paid very little in income taxes, uh, $750 to nothing at all. Uh, primarily because he has claimed more losses than profit, uh, in his business. That's, that's one item. Uh, second item is, you know, this question of he has, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. And when someone has that level of debt on them, what kind of financial pressures and incentives does that place on them? Uh, what, how, how does that affect how he views his uh, job as, uh, as president? How, how does he feel like he needs to take advantage of his office for his own financial gain? Uh, so I think that that's, that's, uh, an angle. And then there are some other pieces. Ivanka Trump received some consultancy fees, you know, Again, I would advise Democrats to not focus on this too significantly. The Biden campaign put out a very subdued, uh, effective ad within hours of the story dropping. I don't think it should be sort of a a major line of attack. Point out the blatant sort of uh, in-your-face you know, discrepancy that someone like Donald Trump is not paying income taxes. Well, most of the rest of us are and, you know, move on Un- unless, you, you know, so, so I think that's on the income tax argument. I do think there's a little more work to be done on the way that Trump has used his position in the White House as a form of self-aggrandizement and the fact that the fact that he has hundreds of millions of dollars in debt might be a part of that. I do think you can make a little headway there, but, uh, but I, I don't think this should be, uh, this should not be dictating the Biden campaign's plans from here on out. Uh, this is a, a story. Let the media do with it what they will prosecute, you know, a couple points of argument and, and, uh, Let's let's stay focused here. Look, uh, one more comment on the religious vote. Uh, right, so, some of this is difficult because we, uh, the polling has been so limited, in really an inexcusable way. Uh, I know some people are saying, "Well, it's hard to get sample sizes for." Well, they're not polling for religious groups that are larger as a percentage of the demographic than some of the other crosstabs that they're including. So they're, th- these polling outlets could do it, A, if they wanted to, and B, if the political parties and if others were saying it was it was necessary. And frankly, I want to get too into this. I think it's a little shady <laughs> that, uh, that there hasn't been uh, religious polling data to the extent that we've seen in previous elections. Uh, yeah, I just think it's shady. I, I could speculate on that, but I, I won't on on this uh, on this on this episode. But it's shady, and it's just for a presidential election where faith is so central. Um, just uh, the the public could use this data, but from the limited polling data we have seen, one thing I'm looking for 
And one thing that frankly concerns me, not just as a political strategist, but as as a Christian, um, is I've seen some emerging signs that white evangelicals in the Rust Belt are beginning to act similarly to white evangelicals in the South. It used to be, during the Obama years, for instance, so not, not long ago, <laughs> that uh, that you would see a Democrat performing, and let's talk about Barack Obama in particular, Barack Obama performing 10 to 15 points above his numbers in a state like Florida or Georgia in particular, that he performed 10 to 15 points above his performance in the South in the Rust Belt. And so I think 2008 or 2012, Barack Obama got like 10 or 11% of white evangelical vote in Georgia. Terribly low, and people should think about why that might have been. It wasn't because folks in Georgia were reading from a different Bible than white evangelicals in a state like Pennsylvania or Ohio where Barack Obama got closer to like 30% of the white evangelical vote. So usually in the Rust Belt, uh, white evangelicals overperform uh, the national uh, average, uh, the, the national support for the Democratic candidate. In the South, they underperform. They, they support the Democratic candidate at a lower percentage. I've seen some polls that suggest a leveling off. And, and my explanation for this is the growing salience of white identity for white evangelicals in the Rust Belt. And I have a personal experience with this. I, I remember in the, I believe it was in the uh, run-up to the to the election in 2016, I attended a friend's wedding in Buffalo where I'm, I'm, I was born, raised. And I saw people at the wedding I had known my entire life, uh, people who... You know, my experience growing up in Buffalo, and I think this is experience for many millennials and certainly older, growing up in places like, say, Philadelphia or Buffalo, I would imagine Pittsburgh, Cleveland, that we didn't think of ourselves as white. We thought of ourselves as Italian. And you would talk about other folks, you would identify them with, oh, it's Irish, German, Polish. Etc. There, there, there was a strong ethnic national uh, identity growing up, and yet I returned for this wedding um, and heard people I, I, that I know my entire life refer to themselves as white and refer to their interests as white. Sort of a sort of need to stick together kind of language that, you know, maybe I missed, maybe, maybe I, I was um, too young to be sort of privy to this. I, I moved from Buffalo when I was, uh, you know, as a, uh, for college, but I've gone back regularly and, and it just, it was striking to me. Uh, to hear this kind of language used. And we could go down a whole conversation about the way that both the right and the left have cons have increased the, the likelihood of this. I think it is a 
of a net negative, a very net negative. Uh, I, 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 I fail to see any positives of this. And as I look at the little polling data that we have, I'm getting a little, you're not seeing white evangelicals over, you're seeing Biden, for instance, do better among white evangelicals in Florida than you would expect. And you're seeing him doing worse than you'd expect among white evangelicals in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, where the numbers, again, are very similar across those states. Now, it's just one set of polls. I think it was Fox News poll. Um, It's something to watch on Election Day. And it's something to watch on Election Day because it could very significantly swing uh, uh, this election. You know, in these states, white evangelicals account for 17% of the electorate, 22% 22% of the electorate, um, significant, you know, about a fifth of, of the electorate. That There's this idea when I'm talking with reporters that white evangelicals, we're talking mostly about the South, like North Carolina, Florida, Georgia. Um, and there is a higher concentration in some Southern states of, of white evangelicals. We're, we're talking about pretty sizable portions of the electorate in states that are going to matter a great deal in five weeks, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Um, we need to be attentive here. Um, and, and so it's just something to watch for. And it's going to be interesting to see if we see a breakage, um, if that trend doesn't translate to Catholics. And there will be a whole lot of hypothesizing and hopefully some really some social science research into this, if that's how it turns out. I hope it's not how it turns out. Again, not just for the political outcome, but for, for, for what it will say about the growing salience of white identity in places where um, in places where that was not always how people thought of themselves. Um, you know, I think it's also a, a story of being further removed from sort of the 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 migrant generation that that came over. There are a whole lot of things that go in. Politically, it's something to be paying attention to. All right. Well, that's sort of my my tip. I think over the last few episodes, I've given some demographic tips about what I'm looking for on election night. Uh, That was another one. Uh, As a reminder, I'm also looking to see if in this election we see the white evangelicals drop off as a percentage of the electorate and the implications that that would have for the standing of white evangelicals in politics and in culture. And, and so uh, quite quite a bit to look for that isn't just going to have meaning for the outcome of the election, though it's critical there, but will have critical meaning for uh, how religious groups interact with the next administration, whosoever who, it is, and for the place of religion Uh, in society generally. All right, we're going to take a break. When I get back, we're going to be talking to Senator Mark Pryor. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I am so honored to have someone I've known over the years. Uh, Senator Mark Pryor Someone I really respect, a former two-term United States Senator and State Attorney General. He's now a partner at Venable uh, Law Firm. Mark, 
is someone who was a centrist Democrat. Reading from his bio here, and which I can attest to, Mark earned a reputation as a voice of reason, working with both parties to pass meaningful legislation. He served on several key Senate committees, including Appropriations, Armed Services, Commerce, Science and Transportation, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, Rules and Administration, Small Business and Entrepreneurship, and the Select Committee on Ethics. Uh, he uh, passed more than 70 pieces of legislation in his two terms, uh, including the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act of 2008, which made consumer goods safer for all Americans, but most especially children's toys. Mark is a believer, a Christian. Uh, he played a really pivotal role in the National Prayer Breakfast. That's how I got to know him. As I was uh, staffing the president, uh, we would coordinate uh, on the National Prayer Breakfast. Uh, he's someone I deeply respect uh, and, again, really honored to have him on the show to talk about uh, faith 2020. And I also was able to ask him some questions about the functioning of the Senate. Uh, and we get into some issues that you'll know are really dear to me and which, uh, which I wish we had hours and hours to talk about. But here's my conversation with the Honorable Mark Pryor. Senator Pryor, thank you so much for joining the Faith 2020 podcast. Uh, honor to have you on. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's my honor. It, it was, um, I so enjoyed uh, the interactions we had when I was at the White House. Uh, appreciated so much about your leadership. Um, you know, it was especially meaningful to me. Uh, your your role with the National Prayer Breakfast and and uh, the the, uh, the fact that we got to collaborate on on some of those gatherings. I would love to just get a sense of. Um, I know you've been involved uh, with uh, the, the the Biden campaign. Um, would love to just get a sense. How 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 are you? How 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 are you doing these days? I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, I left the Senate. Uh, I lost my reelection in 2014. Ended up at a very good law firm. I'm a partner in a law firm in uh, D.C., although I really still live in Arkansas. And I'm like a lot of people, I guess now with COVID, everybody's kind of uh, telecommuting, if you will. But uh, no, it's good. And I am involved in the um, Biden campaign. And of course, you know, my father was in the Senate with Joe Biden for 18 years and I was in the Senate with him for six Um my first six years in Washington, uh, I was uh, uh, I had, you know, I worked with President Bush, George W. Bush. In the second six years I was in the Senate, uh, I worked with President Obama. So, you know, when, when Biden left the Senate and went to the vice president's job, um, you know, we obviously still remain in contact and friends. But one of the things I love about Joe um, is and, and people who know him know this, he doesn't wear it on his sleeve, but Joe has a very deep personal faith. In fact, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and it was on a Sunday and he said, well, I went to 730 mass this morning. You know, he just said that <laughs> casually in passing. And yeah. I said, of course you did. You always, yeah. you know, you always do that. And, and people don't always know that about him. I encourage him to talk a little more openly about his faith. I think he's a little bit of that generation, but also I think, as a general rule, I know this isn't always true, but as a general rule, a lot of Catholics have 
difficulty talking about their faith. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I've encouraged him to do that because it is a very big part of his life. Yeah, I, I had to laugh. He, uh, I think it was this past weekend. Uh, he was at seven thirty mass, and then I believe his granddaughter had a confirmation. So he did the back to back. I have to, I have to admit, if I have a, uh, you know, a, a, a baptism service to go to or, or something like that, I, 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 I usually don't don't attend twice right. on a Sunday morning. I, I count it as a as a twofer. <laughs> that's fine, but. But again, that's the go. I mean, you know, yeah. he goes to nobody knows about it. It's not like a press event for him. It's, it's right. part of his life. And, yeah. you know, I just know that about him. And I, I just have respect for that and uh, appreciate him. I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant as you can be. But I certainly appreciate his deep, very personal faith. Yeah. Uh, well, so obviously, uh, faith is is playing a big role in, in this in this presidential election. Uh, in the same way, I'd argue it it has every presidential election this this century uh, so far. Would love to talk specifically about that, but but first, sort of, what's your what's your general read on on how this election is shaping up? Uh, w- what do you think is do you think there there's anything that's sort of being missed in how this election is generally being thought about, and and how, how do you see see it shaping up over the next seven seven weeks or so? Well, my guess is that um, Joe Biden is on track to win the popular vote for sure. It seems like he's definitely going to do that. And then, of course, in our system, as we all know, as we all learned in several elections over the last 20 plus years, is that, you know, the popular vote doesn't elect a president, the Electoral College does. So uh, I think probably Joe Biden is on track to win the Electoral College as well. You know, one thing I am concerned about is whether votes will be counted. <clears throat> I, I think they're probably, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm yeah. wrong. But it feels yeah. like. There's going to be hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Americans who will go vote, who will actually vote or actually try to vote, make the effort to vote. But for some reason or another, their votes won't be counted. And that's really a shame. Um, We've got to get voting right in this country. And, you know, voting, there's there's really not much more fundamental to a democracy or a republic than voting. I mean, this this is our chance to have our voice heard. This is our one chance every couple of years to cast your ballot for people you want to represent you. You may, you may be for someone, you may be against someone, but you know, you're right. It's an American right that look people all over the world. That's one reason they want to come to this country is to have a voice in their future and have a voice in their government. So I hope everybody votes and I I hope we don't have voting problems on election day. I'm very concerned about that. Yeah, me too, Senator. You know, as someone who believes that our political differences, uh, you know, should be worked out at the ballot box, who who, who does believe in uh, sort of uh, pluralism and sort of civic engagement, and uh, and uh, the the idea that um, you know the democratic processes are essential to holding. Uh, a nation together and, and having everyone feel like they're bought in, even if they lose, even if, you know, quote unquote, their side loses an election. Um, if, if we can't get voting right, all of that is upended. If people can't have confidence in their vote, right. 
it, it, it makes democratic engagement the idea that, that folks have a voice in their government and, and even if they don't win every sort of policy fight that that they at least were heard, it it, it, it really undermines uh, all of that. And especially with, you know, the protests we're seeing and uh, folks uh, trying to be heard, it, it's, it seems like it's more crucial than ever to really, uh, uh, again, make sure we get voting right. Well, you're exactly right. You know, I had a Great experience a few years ago. This has been five or 10 years ago now. I was in an African-American church in Arkansas. It's actually in a little town called Conway, Arkansas. And I was in this African-American church and they had a special, I believe it was a Good Friday service, if I'm not mistaken, but kind of a special, you know, sort of all churches were invited type event. And the pastor stood up and there had just been a, a terrible racial incident somewhere. I don't remember which one it was. And um apologize. I just can't remember all the details because sure. honestly, there's been so many, uh, but anyway, yeah. regardless, he stood up and, and he talked to, there were a lot of students in the, in the room that at a couple of local colleges, a lot of the students came big section students. And he said, look, I, I know that a lot of folks want to hop in the car and drive to wherever and protest. And he said, certainly, you know, you, you have the right to do that, but that's not what you need to do right now. What you need to do is you need to vote. And, and, he's, and, and he said, I know y'all are wondering why I'm saying that, but he said, you know, the problem in this particular place was with the police. And he said, you know, who, who, who hires the police? Well, the police chief. Well, who hires the police chief? Well, the mayor. Well, who hires the mayor? Well, we do. <laughs> you know, yeah. we do, the voters. Yeah, right. And he said, so if you want to fix it, you vote. And it's not just you. You get everybody in your family, all your friends, you get everybody to vote. And you know what? Doesn't matter how they vote, get them to vote. And at the end of the day, um, good things will happen. The, the more voter participation, the more participation by our citizens in our democracy and in this republic, the, the better things are for everybody. You know, it's just an American belief. So there's an American faith in that. Ability yeah. for us it, that if we're if we're fully engaged and we fully participate, good things are going to flow from that. You know, yeah. And, and yeah. Like, like you said, maybe we don't always agree with the outcome. Maybe we don't always agree with the policy. We may lose some elections. We may, that's okay, but we're still voting and we're still participating. But a big part of that is every vote needs to count. We got to get yeah. voting right. You know, absolutely, uh, Senator. You're you're someone who's opinion I've respected over the years, obviously on so many issues, but especially when it comes to faith and public policy, faith and politics. Uh, I want to talk to you a bit later on about sort of the work of the Senate and, and speak more on sort of the, uh, the, the, the legislative side, but would love to just get your sense of the way religion is, uh, 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 the role of religion in this presidential campaign. Uh, I've, I've, I've argued President Trump's reelection really relies, um, it depends on his ability to use religion to his benefit in a maximal <laughs> kind of way. Uh, and it, I, it's been uh, encouraging to me, frankly, as a as someone who's done some of this work uh, from a from a from the Democratic side, to see uh, that whether it's the convention 
uh, whether it's what the Biden campaign has been doing and the fact that they've made some hires on this side and, and the, the the language that's coming out of the Biden campaign that they they don't seem to be willing to let Trump uh, sort of operate in this lane uh, uh, in this area unimpeded. Do you have the do you have the same sense and 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 how how, how do you uh, what's what's your read on how religious voters are are uh, processing the choice that they have in November? Yeah, man, that's a that's a great question, and we could probably spend the next you know twenty minutes talking about <laughs> it. But uh, I'll just try to you know really cut to the chase and sort of yeah. my points. I do think that you're right. The GOP is using evangelicals, and huh. many evangelicals are willingly being used, including evangelical leaders. Hmm. I think that's terribly unfortunate. I feel like that. God is not a political weapon and your faith shouldn't be a political weapon. Yeah. It can be a motivator. It can be a reason why people get involved in politics. And I mean, the thing about scripture is um, it motivates people in different ways. You know, some people read it and say, Hey, I come to the conclusion that I'm pro-life. Other people read yeah. it. And say, hey, I come to the conclusion I'm pro-choice. You know, some read it and say, Hey, I, when, after I read these passages, I'm thinking that, you know, I should really, uh, respect and protect the environment. And others are like, yeah. you know, I, you know, I can do all these other <laughs> things. And, you know, I mean, so look, yeah. there's this, there's this, uh, freedom, for us intellectually to come to different conclusions, reasonable minds can differ. And, and I get that a hundred percent. I'm, I'm for that. You know, I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm a Protestant. And one reason I am is because, um, you know, Protestants maybe see things a little different. They, they see differently among themselves, obviously, we right. know that, but, sure. also, you know, as opposed to the Catholic church as well. Um, but anyway, regardless of that, uh, God is not a political weapon. Um, one thing I would say that does concern me about where we are politically right now is we as believers are called to be different. You know, mm. if you look at the word holy, really kind of at the root of that word, you go back and really dig into that, what it, the origins of that, you know, holiness in, in some ways means otherness, differentness, you know, those are words, but yeah, so we're called to be different. And, and I think one thing that uh, Jesus talks about and Paul and others is that people should see the difference in our lives and that hmm. should be attractive to them. That should bring them closer to God, right? The difference yeah. that we demonstrate Absolutely. in our daily lives. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you go on social media <laughs> right. And you look at these yeah. people who claim to be evangelical Christians. Right. You couldn't tell it by social media. You know, they're angry. They're repeating lies. They're doing things that no Christians should do. And in some churches, you would even be disciplined for doing, you know, I mean, yeah, really, it, it's just not it's not healthy. And. We don't That's have right. a license to do that. You know, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not mm. in our society or even here in America, you know. Yeah. Our yep, citizenship yeah, yeah. is in heaven. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be 
to some extent, we're, you know, in the world, not of the world, we're, we're, we're supposed to be above the fray, but we should be down there getting our hands dirty as well. So, and I know that, you know, everybody has to work that out in their own way yes. in faith right. and, and uh, try to be true to their beliefs. So it's going to be different for you or me or, you know, someone listening to this podcast, that's okay. But um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm very yeah. concerned about where we are. One, one thing I would say about social media, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm talking too much about it. No, please. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we should be about truth, hmm. not opinions, right? Right. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm telling you, man, this country, we are loaded with opinions. We are loaded yeah. with opinions. The church is loaded with opinions. Unfortunately, hmm. not much truth. You know, it's, yeah. about, it's, our, it's about our point of view, our opinions. We may claim something like one of the phrases that I keep seeing Christians use is a, a worldview. Well, yeah. you know, that doesn't mean anything. Worldview. <laughs> tell me the definition of that. You know, tell, tell me what that means. <laughs> also, while we're at it, give me the definition of conservative right now. Give me the definition of liberal. Right. Yeah, there is right, a right, definition. Right. These words can mean so many different things in so many different contexts. I mean, come on, you know, yeah. let's be real. Let's get back to the truth. Let's get back to the scriptures. Let's let God yeah. focus on this. And I think a lot of times what I see and I, look, I've, I've been I'm guilty of this myself. OK, I'm not saying I'm above all this. I'm guilty of this. Sure, too. sure, sure. I fight against it. I try to not do it. But there are definitely times when I reach a conclusion and then I go and find the scripture to justify it, you know. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, that's yeah, that, 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 yeah, right. uh, maybe the other way around is right. is exactly. is a bit better. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I remember <laughs> had a guy years ago that used to lead these Bible studies. He talked about inductive versus deductive uh, <laughs> conclusions, right? And you want to yeah. read the scripture first and let it lead you to a conclusion. And by the way, Michael, it may lead you to one conclusion, me another. That's okay. That's right. There's yeah, and and Paul talks about like that in Romans, for example. About, that's right, exactly right. You know, so that's okay. Even back in the first century, they recognize that Jesus recognized it, Paul recognized it. it's okay. We can come to different conclusions, but the point is, we're driven. We're we're driven by our faith. Right. There's integrity. Yes. Uh, there's integrity involved. That there there's a there's a logic of faithfulness that's involved. Yes. I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, just two two comments on what you said because you're right. We could we could talk. It's, it sounds like we could talk about this for a long time. You know, but but something I've said is, you know, I I, I think sometimes you know these narratives get a, a bit overblown and and it's it's talked about as if uh, you know Christians are sort of the the worst actors in our politics and evangelicals are the worst actors in our politics. And something I've said is it's it's not so much that uh that that Christians are making exceptionally bad contributions to our politics. The problem is exactly what you've highlighted, which is that too often there's nothing exceptional about their contribution to politics at all. And, and there is this call to Christian distinctiveness. There is this call to not just uh uh reflect the fruit of the spirit in sort of our personal lives, but in public as well. That things like gentleness and self-control and kindness 
and joy and love don't go out the window when you step into the public square. <laughs> that, that actually, you know, ought to inform how we are as people uh, in in private and in public. So I think I think that's really important. And then just the the second comment I make is uh, this: your emphasis on truth and, and the idea that you know, as Christians, um, it's not we're not talking about just another set of opinions about a sort of uh, just a, a different way of looking at things. Uh, if, if you're a Christian, you believe that, uh, uh, that, 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 uh, you're bringing actual knowledge to the world, <laughs> that, 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 that there is, that, that there is truth in what you believe. It's not just sort of, uh, a, a family tradition or, you know, just, just, uh, just something that makes you feel good. Um, and so, yeah, it gets really difficult when, when Christians seem to, um, be comfortable playing loose with the facts and loose with the truth because that infects, uh, their ability to, uh, be a witness for the gospel. So, so I, I just think I think your comments were were really uh, really helpful. Hey, let me also let me just add one closing point on that is that one disturbing thing, if you're willing to look at the facts, uh, one disturbing thing is there have been some polls in this year, you know, in 2020, yeah, done by Barna or yes, done by I, I know there was one not long ago that was in Christianity Today. For those of you who read that, is it was uh, Ligonier Ministries, which is the old R.C. Sproul, you know, ministry, and then like yeah, a yeah. bookstore. Um, they they did a poll and kind of some of there's a lot in there and a lot is concerning. But one thing I is I read those and I looked at them at. I mean, it, to me, and look, this is my opinion again, that my opinion uh, is sure. that evangelicals have lost their bearings. Mm. Um, most, uh, you know, according to the numbers, don't spend much time in prayer. They don't spend much mm. time in scripture and they actually don't spend much time in church. Yeah. And here right. they are claiming the mantle of Christ out in our world. <laughs> and guess what? Mm. They, they're, you know, they're, they're lost. Uh, not not yeah. lost like they're not going to be saved. I don't mean that, but right, right, right. They, they've sort sure. of lost their way. And I just worry about the state of our, of the, the church today, the, the um, church universal today. I just wor- worry about that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's right. And, and again, you're just reflecting. I saw the same surveys. These are surveys from, from Christian ministries, from Christian uh, agencies that like, it's just important to grapple with what the reality is in in terms of Christian practice. And obviously there are plenty of Christians from all different kinds of backgrounds who, who are, you know, uh, practicing and are, are engaging with scripture and prayer. But, but I I think you're right. We're seeing some, some troubling, some troubling trends. Um, uh, And and, uh, we're nearing the end of our time. Do you mind if I I ask one or two more questions? Uh, 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 Really appreciate your being gracious with your, with your time. I I, I can't let you go without talking a bit about your view of the health of the Senate as an institution. I I mean, uh, when I, and this isn't a partisan statement, you know, I think about you as one of the exemplars of uh, of uh, bipartisan leadership uh, of of be, uh, viewing uh, elected office as a public service, not a forum for self-aggrandizement. 
Tom Cotton is, uh, let, let me just not that. Uh, and we have lost a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle, whether we're talking about uh, due to um, uh, losing elections, Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Donnelly, uh, uh, thinking about uh, folks that you served with, like John Warner, sure. uh, folks like Dick Luger. Sure. Um, it, I, I used to think maybe a decade ago that the problems with the Senate were, were just that there were some some structural problems, but you could see a, a coalition of senators that were uh, they had the potential across the aisle to to make the Senate work again. I get concerned that we don't have that level of leadership in the Senate anymore in a broad way. I'm a big fan of Senator Chris Coons. I think Senator Lankford is a, is a good man. Um, but in terms of having a, a sizable contingent of senators committed to the institution and committed to uh, who, who aren't incentivized by the toxic polarization that we see, I get concerned. W- would just love your thoughts on on the future of the Senate, on, on how you think the incentive structure changes so that we get more Mark Pryors, more Heidi Heitkamps, uh, more Dick Lugers, and and less of folks who seem to only uh, appeal to uh, the, the base of their base. Well, thanks for the kind words about me. I, I would say that I have serious concerns about the Senate, where it is, and sort of the trend lines in the Senate over the last 10 years. I think of been very unhealthy. But you have to understand this. I think the starting point is the Senate really reflects society and reflects politics overall. You can't really expect the Senate to be really, really different than our overall politics today. And the politics today are very divisive, very partisan, very uh, ends justify the means type approach. Yes. Um, kind, yeah. of, kind of the, uh, you know, character doesn't matter anymore. Uh, you can be a rock solid individual. I mean, a wonderful, amazing person doesn't matter. You're in the wrong party. You're out or you voted this one way you're, you're done, you know? And unfortunately what, what happens is, uh, the, the general public, again, the general public, um, rewards bad behavior. You know, yes. some, some of politics today is about coming up with the scariest ad you can possibly come up with. You know, right? Uh, the most inflammatory person, the loudest person in any race gets more media attention and gets more public attention and more notoriety. Unfortunately, they oftentimes get more votes, too. Um, right. And so that's not the Senate's uh, fault, but. Certainly the Senate is, uh, you know, reaping that uh, and and we can't be disappointed when we have elected leaders who um, don't, you know, don't get the job done because we elect them. That's because your earlier earlier comment about voting is the key to our democracy and our republic. We've, We've got to. Uh, the voters in this country have to be more responsible, you know, for someone to not vote, to just say, oh, I'm tired of them pops on both their houses and it just check out. That's the worst thing that can happen because that's the voter. That's the person, the citizen we need in our democracy more than anything. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> you know, no, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, uh, not to cut, but, 
you know, I, I've said, you know, the hard truth is that the state of our politics is a reflection of the state of our souls. That yes, there are all kinds of campaign finance reform, all kinds of structural reforms, but at the end of the day, our our, our political leaders. And the political system we have in place reflects the incentives and disincentives that the American people themselves introduce into the system. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that is just so critical to understand. I think it's a hard thing for politicians themselves to say. I mean, it was it was interesting. I didn't agree with all of his proposed solutions, but I don't know if you saw Ben Sass's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, 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 this week or last. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, he, people just killed him over that. And I agree some of the solutions he proposed may not be exactly on point, but we need to take seriously the fundamental issue he raised, which is exactly what you just said, which is senders are resp- are responding to the, in, in many ways, the democratic will of of the people. And, and that's what needs to change. I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what it looks like to reform civic character. Um, because I view that as just at the base of so so much of uh, of what we're what we're facing right now, which is you know not to remove responsibility from elected officials to take courageous decisions, but uh, you, you you take a courageous decision and uh, uh, and you could feel good about it, but if it's not rewarded by the voters, then usually a less courageous person is going to, is going to, um, is going to be in that, that seat. Um, right. And so yeah. I, 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 I don't want to take up too much of your time, but would, if you have any final thoughts, and especially if you have any words to, to listeners about how they could be a part of, of, of changing the state of the uh, our politics that we see today? Well, I just think they have to engage. And, and I'm all for uh, peaceful demonstrations. I'm 100% for people, you know, marching and, and, and some of those, uh, you know, uh, nonviolent uh, demonstrations, obviously kind of in the vein of Martin Luther King about, you know, how you can motivate huge segments of society uh, for positive change. And I'm hundred percent for that. Uh, but you cannot underestimate um, about how important voting is, but also just getting, getting yourself engaged in all aspects. You know, Jesus talked about what, what I would call the universal neighborhood of man, you know, well, who is my neighbor? Well, he tells a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the universal neighborhood of man. We have an obligation. We as believers have an obligation to engage and pr- help our neighbor. Now we can do it on a one-on-one basis. That's fine. That's the illustration he, uh, Jesus gave in his, his, his parable. But um, really in our democracy, we can do this on a grand scale too. And it can be yeah. plugging into campaigns, plugging into various, you know, activities, uh, you know, doing things like that. So I I would say this to something that we both talked about earlier, just I want to say it in a different way. When you get Jesus, you know, Jesus was not a conservative. Jesus was not a liberal. Jesus was not a Democrat. Jesus was not a Republican. He's so far above and beyond that. It's ridiculous. It is. And it's insulting to me. It's insulting to me. When someone almost claims that, hey, if you're going to be a believer, you've got to be X. That's not true. Amen. 
That's not that's true. right. That is not based in scripture. And people are just wrong about that. That's their personal view. And that's not a scriptural view that that, that doesn't come from God. That comes from somewhere else. So I just want to encourage people to get in, get in the Bible. You know, first and foremost, get in the Bible, pray, be involved, engage that way. And then secondly, yeah. if that leads you to civic engagement, we want as much civic engagement as you can tolerate, because that's how you change society is, is that kind of engagement. Okay. Uh, Senator, I'm so tempted to, uh, to, to keep this going, but uh, I, I can't thank you enough. I'm so grateful for you. Thanks for uh, coming on to the show. And, and what, just, you know, on behalf of my audience, we're so grateful for, for your public service, your continued public service. We look forward to continuing to follow uh, you and your work. Uh, and, and thank you for, for your voice and the way you use it. Michael, thank you so much for having me. Well, what a, a great conversation. Again, thank you to uh, Senator Mark Pryor for joining the podcast. Uh, he has been a critical voice in our politics. We'll continue to be so, so grateful for his public service. Um, that's all we have. Let's see how this debate plays out. We'll do another episode to um, to, to, to look at the, the first debate, um, pull out. I, you know, I think faith is going to come up. Uh, Chris Wallace has announced the uh, the subject areas that he will be covering. Uh, the Supreme Court is going to be one of them. Find it hard to believe we're going to get through that section of the debate in particular without talking about faith, without talking about Barrett, without talking about religious freedom, without talking about uh, reproductive uh, rights. And so, uh, again, faith is. Uh, continuing to play a central role in this election. Just as I told you, you know, every four years we get around and uh, there's this idea that, uh, you know, maybe this is the election where faith isn't going to matter. Well, it's not this one. And that's why we're doing the Faith 2020 podcast. Uh, So happy to be able to do this. Again, would urge you to Go to iTunes, leave a review, check in with uh, me at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Until next episode, this is Michael Weir. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Thanks for listening.